0: Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS
1: 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. In this week's rehearing, we'll be listening to the conversation I had with Judge Stephen Vaden. This conversation is particularly relevant now because Judge Vaden and I talked about the state of legal education, and particularly some of the demonstrations that have gotten out of hand at his alma mater, Yale Law School. Again, this is relevant now because of what's recently happened at Stanford Law School with Judge Kyle Duncan, and so I thought it'd be great to hear what Judge Vaden has to say on that topic and the other topics we discussed, too. So enjoy my interview with Judge Stephen Vaden. We're pleased to be joined today by Judge Stephen Vaden, who currently serves as a judge on the U.S. Court of International Trade. Judge Vaden, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Zach. Well, thank you so much for being here. Now, Judge, before we dive into your legal career and your work as a judge, uh, I'm curious what made you want to be a lawyer? Well, um, my
0: father was a farmer, and he also had uh, a number of rental properties. So I grew up in a small town uh, in northwest Tennessee called Union City, and when I wasn't in school, I spent my time helping him fix up the rental properties and deal with the farms. And any time you own land, uh, you're going to have interactions with government.
1: Sure.
0: Because quite frequently uh, there are people in government uh, who don't own anything themselves who nonetheless think that they know how you should run your affairs. (laughs) and so, um you know growing up, and my father keeping me close, I saw that, and sure. uh, I think that's where I developed kind of uh, my own philosophy about having uh, you know government let people make decisions for themselves rather than make decisions for them. but you know we found ourselves in all types of situations that property owners do. Uh, I can recall I was in college. Um, at Vanderbilt. And uh, that happened to be a year that the county reassessed properties for tax purposes. And they, uh, you know, sent out all of the uh, notices telling us what they thought the properties were worth. And we thought that was, uh, you know, fanciful. Um, And I told my father, well, why don't we go down to the Board of Equalization and Appeal? And he said, well, you know, that's just a waste of time. And I said, well, let me do it. So I went down there, and I took up a whole afternoon of their time because we owned a lot of property going through, and we ended up winning. <laughs> they ended up reducing, all of them that I appealed.
1: Well, congratulations. And, and so at that
0: point, I realized, well, you know, I'm talented at this arguing thing. Somebody hmm. ought to pay me for it. So that's, uh, that's, what, that's kind of what led me into law, a, a natural uh, affinity
1: for making an argument. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned you went to undergrad at Vanderbilt, uh, but I believe you did your law school at Yale. That's correct. Uh, What was that experience like, uh, going to law school uh, at Yale?
0: Well, I feel like, uh, particularly if you dissent from the overwhelming liberal ideology of the legal academy, that every class that goes through, particularly at Yale, feels like they had it worse. Um, but compared to what is going on at that law school now, um, it was halcyon days. (laughs) Uh, I was there from 2005 to 2008. That was, of course, the era of the Iraq War um, and the controversy surrounding that very much animated law students on all sides of the issue. Uh, The dean at the time, Dean Harold Coe, was very vocal on those issues. Um, But despite all that, uh, you know, all of us, including myself, had friends across the aisle. Politics didn't uh, go through the law school so strictly that you know conservatives didn't talk to people who were not conservatives, and vice versa. Right. We all got along. We still do get along. Um, you know, I had people from my class who were decidedly uh, not Republicans support my nomination to the Court of International Trade and sign a letter on my behalf. Unfortunately, from what I'm hearing from current Yale Law students, that does not appear to be the case any longer. It has gotten worse. Um, You know, the dean of the Yale Law School, Harold Coe, no Republican he, um, was one of my biggest supporters uh, for getting a clerkship and other things that came along in my career and was nothing but kind to me. Um, Unfortunately, from what I'm hearing from uh, current students, including those affiliated with the Federalist Society, they don't feel the same way about the law school right now, and that's deeply unfortunate.
1: It is indeed. Do you think there's any chance of fixing that, Judge, or do you have any thoughts about how that might be able to be fixed? Well, I hope it can
0: be fixed because it must be fixed. Um, Just take politics completely out of it. The job of a lawyer is to make an argument. Right. Right. And if you're making an argument, that means of necessity that there is someone who opposes you and has a different point of view. So if you go through three years of law school and you are incapable of conversing with someone who has a different view from you, you are not qualified to be a lawyer and you will be unable to represent your client. So that, that's the first issue. It has to fix itself because law cannot function in such an environment where people cannot have civil conversations who disagree on a point. Right. Um, but secondly, um, I hope it can be fixed. But what most disturbs me is that the current leadership of the Yale Law School, and by that I mean the dean, Heather Gerken, um, has shown no interest mm. or capability in fixing it. To the extent there have been public voices saying we have a problem that needs to be solved, it has been from faculty members who hold no official leadership position at the law school. And that is what is most disturbing because unless those who are actually charged with leading the law school want to fix a problem, nothing will happen. It's hard enough to fix things in an academic environment. And I guess what I would hope is that Yale Law School prides itself – on having been ranked as the number one law school ever since U.S. News did its first uh, survey. It is the only educational institution that has maintained a number one position continuously throughout that now. We're well more than 30 years since they issued their first rankings. Um, I hope it is not the case that in order for Yale to realize it has to change – Um, That it will be – that it will take it being knocked off its pedestal as the number one law school. But given the inaction that we are seeing from the current leadership, that may indeed be unfortunately what it takes for them to realize uh, that they are – have a problem and that they are not perfect. And that is namely the realization of someone telling them you're no longer number one.
1: Right. Well, I'm certainly hopeful that Yale can figure this out and really all of legal academia can figure it out as well. Now, you mentioned that your former dean at Yale was one of your uh, supporters when you're seeking a clerkship. And after law school, I believe you did uh, two clerkships. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experiences of clerking after law school?
0: Yeah, I clerked first for Julia Smith-Gibbons on the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and then I clerked for Judge uh, Samuel, known as Hardy Mays, on the Western District of Tennessee. So I went back home to West Tennessee uh, to clerk. Um, I tell students – as a matter of fact, I just told a student uh, this just a few moments ago before coming in here who asked me a a similar question. Um, Appellate clerkships are considered to be more prestigious, Mm -hmm. but – I don't know uh, if that prestige is tied to their actual utility. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe I'm an oddball, and I practiced appellate law. But I, I, I will say this: the life of an appellate judge and the life of an appellate clerk is something like a monk. Right. You are locked away in a room that no one visits for large portions of the year. You right. read things, and after reading things, you write things. Right. A to 10 to 12 times a year, they let you out of your room and you get to go somewhere and go into a courtroom and interact with other people. Right. Um, it takes a special type of person to want to do that on a continued basis. On the trial court level, there is always something going on in the courtroom, you have repeat players whom you see frequently, so you get to know their foibles as well as their their good points. And uh, quite frankly, the trial court is, uh, in particularly with regard to local news, much more in the spotlight than the appellate court is. So while I am grateful for my appellate court experience and have no complaints about it, I thought clerking for Judge Mays was more fun.
1: <laughs> I, I can understand that. When I was clerking on the 11th Circuit, my judge used to say the only visitors we got on a regular basis were the UPS man and the FedEx man. That's right. <laughs> Coming That's to the right. office. <laughs> That's right. Are there any special memories that stand out from your time clerking for uh, either Judge Gibbons on the Sixth Circuit or Judge Mays on the uh, district court? You know,
0: the, the memories that come back to me are of arguments that should have been made mm. by lawyers who didn't fully understand the scope of their case. Mm. And that is something that I see now as a judge. Uh, And it stands out uh, even more readily than it did at a time when I was first beginning my legal career. Sure. Um, You know, I always tell people, uh, regardless of which box you think your legal practice is in, there is no such thing as a box. Law is a conversation. So whether you practice trade law or whether you practice – you're an appellate practitioner, you are in conversation with all other areas of the law. And if you don't have some general knowledge of what's going on in those areas of the law, you're doing your client a disservice because you may be missing issues that would be critical to helping resolve their case in a way your client would like. Did either Judge Gibbons or Judge Mays, did they have traditions that they maintained with their clerks? Judge Gibbons wanted to eat lunch with us every day she was in chambers, mm. so we would either go out or we would um, sit around the conference room table and have lunch and discuss things, and that was a really nice tradition. She also had regular clerk reunions. Um, Judge Mays is a little bit more like myself, uh, and that is to say um, he, he was managing partner of Baker Donaldson, so he ran a very large law firm. Right. He was a, uh, a worker bee. His interest was in getting his work done, and that is my interest. So um, we didn't have shared lunches or anything like that. I have tried to meld the two with my practice so that when I am in chambers uh, at least one time a week – Um, I take my clerks out, and we kind of have a lunch away from the courthouse. Mm. But uh, I don't go to Judge Gibbons' level of doing it every day. I figure that they have work to do like I do, and I might be interfering with them.
1: Understandable. Now, you mentioned you practiced appellate law uh, before you took the bench. Uh, After you clerked, I understand you worked at two prominent law firms. Uh, Could you tell us about that experience in private practice? Yeah, so I worked for
0: Patton Boggs and Jones Day. Uh, the firm is now known as Squire Patton Boggs after right. a merger. At both places, I did election law, and I did uh, primarily appellate cases. Uh, and so uh, the kind of niche that I had was I was the litigator for the election law group, which oh, meant wow. that any time um, one of our uh, – Frequently politician, but also they could be a lobbyist, a pollster, or a large political donor who wanted to stay on the right side of the law. Anytime they found themselves under investigation, be it by the Federal Election Commission, uh, an ethics committee of either House of Congress, or heaven say them the criminal division of the DOJ, um, you know, I would be involved uh, with the partners in um, uh, making certain that you know, we were doing everything in the shadow of a possible trial proceeding. Sure. Um, And then, of course, uh, there are all types of challenges that get filed around election time, either pro or con estates rules. Uh, And I did quite a lot of litigation with that. Uh, And, of course, I also had a a general practice where I worked with uh, partners at both of those firms who um, just took on cases on behalf of businesses, many of them administrative law related. They didn't like the result. Uh, And, you know, I'm I guess I'm somewhat unique. I, I loved my time at Patton Boggs. Um, the firm, since its merger has changed, and I wasn't there after the merger, so I can't comment on how it is now. But I loved the old patent bogs. And that, that was a law firm, but it was built around a lobbying shop. So lobbying was kind of what created the place and the law firm built around that. And because of that, it had a wonderful ethos, a free market ethos, where they, uh, they basically had a rule. If we think you can do it, You can do it, Mm. and most law firms are not like that, and so that is what led me as a um, third- or fourth-year associate – I forget exactly when it was – to be – to first chair uh, a case before the D.C. Circuit and argue it on behalf of a paying client before the (laughs) D.C. Circuit on a panel that included then Judge Kavanaugh, and not only that, we ended up winning three to nothing. Now, I don't know many firms that would allow a third- or fourth-year associate to first chair, but they had a lobbying client. They didn't get the result they wanted in the rulemaking proceeding. They looked it up and said, hey, this has to go directly to the Court of Appeals. Stevens is our, Stephen is our clerk who came from the Court of Appeals.
1: Let him do it. And so you know, it all worked out. Well, that is a very unique experience <laughs> it sounds like. So my I
0: can honestly say that my first time to argue a case in federal court – was before
1: the D.C. Circuit, which is not an experience <laughs> that most people get. With a great outcome. <laughs> With a great outcome, yeah. Uh, now, after your time in private practice, you eventually moved over into government service. Yes. How did that move come about?
0: Well, uh, but we represented political candidates. Uh, we'd moved to Jones Day at that point. And so in 2016, each partner had at least one presidential candidate that he was representing. And Don McGahn represented Donald Trump, and Donald Trump became the nominee. And so, uh, you know, as we got closer to Election Day, uh, Don asked those of us who were helping out with the legal matters, you know, should then candidate Trump win? Would you write down on a piece of paper three or four places you might be interested in taking a political appointment? And so I thought about it for a while, and uh, I wrote down three or four things, and one of them was agriculture. And, and Don uh, came to me one day after receiving my list, and he said, um, you wrote down agriculture. No one writes down agriculture at this point. <laughs> Why did you do that? And I reminded him of having grown up in a small rural community of 10,000 people in northwest Tennessee. Um, my father was a farmer. I knew the constituency served by the Department of Agriculture and the important work that it did. It's basically the federal government for rural America. And so you could see the gears working in his head, and, and, and Don said something to the effect of, well, that actually makes a lot of sense, um, and you're the only lawyer that I know that owns a farm. Um, how would you like to be general counsel of the Department of Agriculture? I, well, that'd be fine. And I didn't give much more <laughs> thought to it until a couple months later when President Trump won election. And then on the first Monday after the inauguration, because I attended the inauguration, sure. which was on a Friday, um, uh, on the 23rd of January, I worked, walked into USDA as its top attorney and spent nearly all of
1: the four years there as its top attorney. Well, what was your experience like as the top attorney at USDA, at the Department of Agriculture? Are there any particular memories or battles that stand out from your time there? Well, I loved it, first of all, uh,
0: because um, most cabinet departments are so big. They're comprised of many different agencies. Each of those agencies is headed by a political appointee who likely reports to an undersecretary. Right. But each of those undersecretaries is responsible for only a sliver of the department. So in most cabinet departments, only the secretary, the deputy secretary, and the general counsel have to consider the department as a whole. So in many ways, my job was not just providing legal advice but also serving as a traffic cop. In other <laughs> words, one part of the department may be working on something that either works nicely or conflicts right. with something that the other de- part of the department is working on, but they don't know it because they don't communicate. I know it because I'm providing legal advice to everybody, and you can get them on the same page. So I loved that. Um, you know, a, a lot of the battles that we fought, you know, I could I could point to things. We had two cases at the Supreme Court while I was general counsel. We won both of them. Uh, I'm glad to say. Um, there were a lot of battles we fought behind the scenes to have the administration take certain positions. Um, I'm glad to say uh, that we were successful in getting them to take some positions. And I can talk about this because I could never touch it as a judge since I worked on it. Um, but you know, for example, there are a couple of cases that the Supreme Court either has taken or is considering taking uh, that that we worked on when I was General Counsel at USDA. One of them is the case out of California involving whether it is um, uh, agreeable with the Dormant Commerce Clause of the Constitution for California to pass a regulation that tries to regulate how people in every other state but California raise their pigs for pork, right? And uh, that may not seem to be like an important issue unless you eat, but, um, you know, it is a huge issue when one state produces almost no pork, and yet they pass a law, and they actually, as part of this, send inspectors in to other states to look at their farms to ensure they are complying with California law. Now, is that actually what our founding fathers intended a state to be able to do? And should a state like California, any state, be a de facto national regulator? That's an important question. We got the Department of Justice to file a brief saying, no, this does not accord with the dormant commerce clause. The Ninth Circuit disagreed with us. But now the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case, and they're going to take it up. So uh, you know, another issue involves preemption and the Monsanto case that is currently before the Supreme Court. They have not made a decision on that one about whether to take it, but we filed a brief saying, you know, when the EPA has made a determination that a chemical is safe— Under the particular law called FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Rodenticide, and Fungicide Act, say that twice uh, very quickly.
1: It is a mouthful. Um, Yes.
0: I have to be slow when I say it. Um, That ought to mean something, and California shouldn't be able to effectively regulate them through a tort scheme to try to put them out of business. Um, once again, the Ninth Circuit disagreed. We filed a brief, and, and I will say this, our brief accorded with past administrations, both Republican and Democrat, on this issue. The Biden administration has chosen to flip positions and say, oh, no, we're disagreeing with both Republicans and Democrat administrations of the past. Um, we think that California can completely do this. You know, we'll see if the Supreme Court ends up taking it up. Um, so in, in – in, Outside of those court battles, I think the thing that I was most proud of was working for a secretary who was determined to make the federal government work for its constituents, those whom were there to serve. He was devoted to getting our employees as close to the people they serve as possible. He was devoted to seeing to it we were open normal business hours with our employees available to answer questions and help other people at the department during normal business hours. To most people listening to this, this sounds like uh, you know something that just should be normal. Right. Sad to say in the federal government it's not. I'm proud that I provided legal advice to help the secretary move two entire agencies of USDA out of Washington, D.C. and to Kansas City, Missouri where they are much closer to the constituencies right. that they serve. And I'm also proud of the fact that I had the backing of the secretary to fight battles to ensure the labor agreements uh, under which our employees worked uh, mandated that they be in the office at times when farmers and others who depended on their legal advice or or other skills uh, to be there when they needed them to answer the questions. It cannot be that federal uh, employees um, – live in a kind of sinecure where they have rights different uh, than the employees in the private sector. Our federal employees are very important. They they administer programs which are vital to so many people, and that's why we must have work conditions that ensure they can interact with the people they serve on a regular basis so that not only – our constituents are getting the services they deserve, but also so that our federal employees are getting feedback on how these programs are working and can provide that to the senior officials so we can make modifications where Mm. these programs are not working the best that we can. And far too often, federal employment rules hamstring standard things like that that are necessary to run any program successfully.
1: Right. Right. Now, after your time at the Department of Agriculture as the General Counsel, uh, obviously you were appointed to the bench. Uh, how did that nomination and appointment uh, process? How did that come about? <laughs> well, people will not believe
0: me when I say this, but this is this is a hundred percent the truth. Um, I did not apply to be a judge on this court. Um, I was cold called. <laughs> um, And so I was visiting USDA. Believe it or not, the Office of General Counsel has an office in San Francisco, California. Okay. Um, Strange place. There's a lot of agriculture in California, particularly in the Central Valley. Right. Not so much in San Francisco. Okay. But for whatever reason, our office was in San Francisco, California. So I was out there visiting our attorneys. And I was walking back from uh, our San Francisco office to my hotel, also in downtown San Francisco, and the phone rang. And I could tell uh, from the way it flashed up on my cell phone that it was the White House. Well, I wasn't going to take a call from the White House on the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> so I waited until I got back to the hotel, and I, uh, I, I took the phone call and I returned the phone call. And uh, the person on the other end was a friend of mine who worked in the White House counsel's office. And uh, he started asking me questions uh, about uh, trade matters and trade law. And uh, I interrupted him, and I said, look… If Because trade was much in the news during the Trump administration, and farmers are the tip of the spear. Um, Agriculture is the one area in which America has a consistent surplus in terms of trade. We export far more than we import. We've had that at this point for well more than 50 years. Agriculture is the one constant trade success story. So anytime America does anything – Offensively with regard to trade, the retaliation of our international partners is always on American ag because that's the one area they can place a tariff or place a restriction, and they know they will harm us because otherwise we import so much uh, from other countries into the United States. So I thought what he was doing was wanting me to potentially serve as a spokesman for the president's trade policy to rule America. And so I interrupted him, and I said, look, I'm more than willing to do that, but you know that these are sensitive issues for our constituents. I'm going to need to talk to the secretary and make certain he's okay with it. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. Have you ever considered serving on the Court of International Trade? (laughs) And I I stopped for a minute, and I said, well… I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) And so he talked it up to me and explained to me why the White House thought I would be the perfect nominee for this position. And I I asked him, I said, um, can I have some time to think about this? And he said, well, absolutely. We're dropping this on you. And so over the next 30 days, I called up a number of people uh, whom I trusted, um, including uh, the judges for whom I clerked. Other uh, members who had served in the Trump administration and later became judges and just some other federal judges that I knew. And quite frankly, what I was doing was I was looking for someone to say no. No, I wouldn't take <laughs> this position. Sure, And yet it didn't matter who I called up, whether they were a trial court judge, an appellate court judge, or what have you. They all said, man, that's a great gig. If they had offered me that, I would take it. So after 30 days of looking for someone to say, no, I wouldn't take that, Stephen, <laughs> um, I uh, I called the White House back and I said, look, if it is the president's desire that he would like to nominate me uh, for this
1: position, I will accept the nomination. And so the rest is history. Oh, fantastic. Now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Court of International Trade, could you tell us a little bit about the court and how it's unique in some ways from other federal courts? Yes. The Court of International Trade
0: is an Article Three court. And it is currently the only specialty court that is an Article Three court. So I'm just like your your average federal district judge, federal appellate judge. I have life tenure as well. Sure. Our jurisdiction is not geographically limited like most federal courts. We have nationwide jurisdiction. It's limited by subject matter. We have nationwide jurisdiction over anything that affects international trade, particularly decisions of the Commerce Department uh, on import tariffs and decisions of the Customs uh, Bureau enforcing those tariffs and excluding or including things or taxing them in a certain way. And then there are certain other cabinet departments who make decisions occasionally that can be appealed to us, including Treasury and Agriculture and Labor. And then the president has certain unique authorities under the trade law where he unilaterally can do things, and those matters are also reviewable
1: by our court. Now, where is your court located, Judge? It's
0: located in New York City um in uh it's we're directly across the street from the second circuit Hmm. and we're attached to the southern district of new york we are the uh, big black glass box in federal plaza (laughs) uh, in new york city that is our courthouse we have nine judges um we are the only court that is authorized to set internationally if we needed to go to a foreign port in order to have a proceeding the law allows us to do that okay we also are allowed to set outside of new york So, for example, um, if a case originated uh, in Houston, Texas, where there's a very large port, um, and all of the facts and the witnesses were in Houston, we go down to Houston and hold the trial. We don't require them to come to New York. So we're something of a vagabond. And the other thing I'll point (laughs) out is that um, we have a unique statute. Um, Our statute was last overhauled in 1980. And so in some ways, it's a relic of that time in that like federal courts of that era, they later changed this for every other federal court. They have never amended our statute since to change it. If someone brings a constitutional claim to our court, we are required to comprise a three-judge court and hear it as a three-judge court. Um, We can't Mm. hear constitutional claims just as a single judge the way a normal trial court would.
1: So do you hear most of your matters as a single-judge court? We do.
0: We do because most of our claims are statutory interpretation, regulatory interpretation— I tell people we're the D.C. Circuit of trial courts. Mm. The work we do is far more appellate court in nature, and the large majority of our cases would be familiar to most appellate practitioners as being essentially the same in form and briefing as a petition for review before a federal circuit court of appeals. So jury trials are a a once-in-a-blue-moon thing before us. I think we've had approximately two in the last 20 years. We function and operate like an appellate court.
1: Mm fascinating well judge i have one final question for you it's a question we ask all of our guests here on scotus 101 if you could have a conversation with any justice living or dead who would it be and what would you talk about
0: Ooh, that is uh that is a tough question
1: as i tell many of our guests no pressure
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know as a as a yale student for better or worse most of the um Supreme Court justices that serve at the time you're there stop by while you're there. Sure. So um, I'm not going to list any of them because I feel like even though I haven't necessarily had a one-on-one conversation with all of them, I, I have a feel uh, for for, uh, for what they would have done. Um, but you know, just thinking off the top of my head, um, I'd like to talk to Byron White. Byron Wright had a very interesting uh, career before he reached the Supreme Court. Wizard White. Yes, he was a famous football player. Right. Um, probably he will be the only person to ever play professional football and also <laughs> sat on the, on the Supreme Court of the United States. He also is a singularity in terms of the fact that he was appointed by President Kennedy, his only appointment to the court. Um, And yet, if you look at his jurisprudence, um, he was very moderate to conservative in terms of how he voted um, all throughout his lengthy tenure on the court. He served up until the 1990s. Um, And he's the the only appointee of a Democratic president to have the record that he does. And so I'd like to learn more about what shaped his philosophy, um, why he ruled the way he did. And why, when so many justices tend to go the other way over time, why he maintained his moderation uh, to you know particularly business conservatism, I guess we'll call it sure um, in terms of his outlook and his legal philosophy um, throughout his entire tenure because you know he he's someone that I think could be seen of as a model justice in terms of someone who did the job. And uh, regardless of who came before him, you kind of could figure out how Justice White was going to vote because he, he kept to the same principles. And I also, quite frankly, respect his thoughts on how the Supreme Court should work. Um, it may be a dissenting view uh, today, but I think our Supreme Court takes too few cases. Justice White uh, was known for voting for cert in any petition that came up there. Um, Where there was a circuit split. Mm. And if you believe, as I think you must, that federal law by its very nature should apply to someone in California the same as it applies to someone in New York or Tennessee, um, we should not tolerate and the Supreme Court should not tolerate a difference of application of federal law between circuits. Mm. That's what it is there to do in both the sexy and the far more common (laughs) unsexy cases. Justice White was committed to that, and I very much respect that.
1: Well, excellent. Well, Judge Vane, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, and I hope to see you again on the show in the not-so-distant future. Well, thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening to this rehearing episode of SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.